0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Moradian. And joining us today is retired United States Navy Admiral Mike Rogers, the former director of the National Security Agency and a former commander of U.S. Cyber Command. He is now a cyber consultant and also serves as the chairman of the advisory board of cybersecurity firm Clarity. Mike, uh, welcome back and thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Oh, thanks, Michael. Great to be with you. It's been too long. Uh, A word uh, from our sponsors before we get underway. Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Mike, you, you joined us before Russia's uh, invasion, and we were talking about concerns uh, whether Moscow was going to strike the United States and its allies, uh, especially after the shooting uh, began or even uh, before, as has been Russia's uh, want. Uh, there was some cyber activity, but it was contained uh, and that's really been uh, attributed to extraordinary efforts by the United States government and its allies uh, including the organizations you led uh, but also unprecedented public-private uh, partnerships something that you've consistently called for uh, you were one of the architects of, of defend forward uh, was this a vindication of that strategy
1: I don't know if I, I would say it was a vindication but I, I remain very comfortable with the strategy and I think it is a very it outlines a very prudent set of rationales and thoughts about how cyber and America's capability in cyber should be enhanced about the importance of partnerships, about the fact that, look, if we wanna understand this dynamic, we need to be in the domain and we need to be in the domain forward, not just in the US waiting for things to happen. We wanna generate deep knowledge of the adversary or adversaries, the actors out there. And one of the best ways to do that is to be involved in areas that they themselves are operating like ukraine's a good example where we are learning so much about you know continually about russian tradecraft and russian capabilities in cyber as well as some of their shortfalls we shouldn't kid ourselves we are also seeing some shortfalls in russian cyber capacity and capability
0: what are some of the lessons uh that you're taking away from seeing uh their activity what's working what's not working what they're doing what they're not doing what they might be doing next?
1: So the first is they have traditionally excelled in set piece cam- cyber campaigns focused on adversaries who were m- low to moderately prepared and who did not have a significant high rate of change in their cybersecurity or de- cyber defense structure. So if you look at what they were doing pre Russian invasion, not just in the immediate buildup, but over the last several years. They've been very strong in these set-piece campaigns against specific U.S. networks. What I think the current situation in Ukraine highlights, they are not as strong in an environment in which the potential target has a much higher level of preparation, has a much more higher level of continual change and evolution and improvement and that just as in the, the ground arena and the maritime arena, we are seeing the Russians are not excelling in maneuver at the ability to bring together fires simultaneously. I look at cyber and go, guys, we're seeing the exact same attributes. They're not excelling in maneuver, they're, they're behind, they are not, they're not anticipating as well as I thought they might some of the defensive upgrades that you're seeing on a real-time basis In Ukraine and they have not been able to overcome the high level of cyber resilience that we are seeing within Ukraine, which I think is a great testament not just to Ukraine itself, but to the broader kind of operational concept they have put together. For the first time to me, you are watching a nation, in this case Ukraine, crowdsource cyber defense. They have managed to align the capabilities of the Ukrainian government, its military, its commercial segment, It's private citizens who, in many cases, they are going to saying, look, if you have IT skills, we would like you to become part of our IT army, whether it be offensive or defense. And perhaps most significantly, they also have great partnerships ongoing with both Western IT and cybersecurity companies, as well as Western, to include U.S., um, intelligence and governmental cybersecurity organizations. It's
0: really it, something it, impressive to watch. To be um, it, it, it's it's extraordinary. But what are the lessons that we can derive in terms of uh, how we improve our capabilities here? Right. I mean, this has been a focus for some time. This administration has been making some enormous progress, put a lot of very important talent in there. It looks like the president himself is personally interested in this topic and driving it. Right. You get change when the boss is uh, is interested. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what are the lessons we should be deriving from Ukraine that are directly applicable to what to improving our nation's uh, cybersecurity? So,
1: what Ukraine shows you to me is the future of cybersecurity is all about integration, integration, integration. Not just collaboration, but real-time working side by side 24-7. Now, that's a very different approach than the historic one we've taken in the United States with respect to collaboration. Hey, the government will share insights as they become available, and the private sector will share insights as they become aware of their applicability or concern to government. That, that's not the same thing as what you're seeing in Ukraine, which is very much multiple actors acting together in a very integrated way. And that's the, the amazing thing is they're not all physically located geo or they're not all physically together. It's not like Ukraine said, you know, we're gonna create one massive cybersecurity ops center. In, in Ukraine for our infrastructure and we'll bring everybody together they are doing this with both a physical component as well as a, a virtual component I just think there's some great examples we really need to tear in there
0: and get deeper knowledge about how it's structured how it's
1: working and what are the things that aren't working as well as Ukraine would really. like
0: one of the things uh, you've called for and you've uh, you've you've touched on it is is closer, uh, and more integrated uh, collaboration between government and uh, industry on this. As you said, you know, generally, uh, it's been the U.S. government who's told people shields up, and that's uh, exactly what CISA, uh, as well as the White House and everybody else, gave uh, advice to industry. Um, there were a lot of tool sets and a lot of uh, assistance there. But it also looks like we've crossed a, a variety of uh, important boundaries in making progress, right? How has this invasion, the U.S. response to it, the U.S. preparations for it, right? I mean, we saw some cyber incidents, Mike, but not to the extent even remotely that we expected to see. And it looks like folks were improving their defenses. Give us a sense on, you know, you always said that there was going to be some crisis that was going to drive this. Um, Is this the crisis? And are we actually driving and making progress in terms of that integration between government and industry I guess is my question.
1: So are we making progress? Yes. Is it where we need to be? In my opinion, no. Uh, Look, we've been very lucky. We're not dealing with the the kind of level of both capability as well as high level of activity that Ukraine is right now in terms of threats directed by the Russians against U.S. infrastructure. It, It makes me wonder in part, is there some level of deterrence out there that we haven't really recognized so far? At so far in this conflict, it seems to me both Russia and the United States have gone out of their way to, to not attempt to escalate this conflict, whether that be by expanding it in terms of geography, whether it be expanding it in terms of domain, cyber, space, nuclear, etc., um, and not. Not accelerate, not expanding it in terms of severity or intensity, if that makes sense. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the severity or intensity to those Ukrainian individuals on the ground. I, in no way, want to minimize the pain they're experiencing and the true horror that the Russians are unleashing on them. My only point is as bad as all that is, it could be much worse in terms of severity and intensity. It, it makes me wonder why not, why has it not gone with greater intensity, greater severity? Why has it not expanded in geography or in domain? And it, it, it does make me wonder, perhaps are we seeing some level of deterrence, even though I, I wouldn't necessarily call it cyber deterrence, but are we seeing some level of deterrence? You know, is the fact that the US government has been very aggressive about trying to help the U.S. private sector prepare for potential activity on the part of the Russians and others. You've seen warnings about China, for example, in the last week. So it's not just Russia. Um, has that in some ways led the Russians to potentially decide, say, well, maybe they're a little bit more prepared than we thought. I'm not prepared to make that conclusion yet. But it, uh, to me, you can only view it as a positive. And I, you know, I welcome what the government's doing, and it was great to see the government out at RSA, the world's largest you know cybersecurity conference, the first session, um, hard to believe, since February of 2020, um, so almost you know two and a half years. It was great to see everybody out there, strong government presentation and participation across almost every major government organization involved in cyber, from the policy side down to the actual execution of cybersecurity activities, I thought that was great to see. Now we got to keep building on this. And the, what I'm hoping is I would love to see us get together with our Ukrainian counterparts and really dig into what worked well for them, what did not work well, what were we seeing out of the Russians, and then asking ourselves, so how can we apply that within our structure? I'd rather, um, I'd, I'd th- like to start doing that now.
0: Um, well, I mean, obviously the sooner we do that, the, the the better, although it looks like they've got their hands full <laughs> uh, cool. at, at the moment. Um, do do how much of it do you attribute right so how much did the russians do that we blunted was it in those exchanges that may have conveyed some of these messages or the russians simply didn't do all that much because they had their own hands full at at the time
1: i now you did see some activity prior to the conflict the uh, attack against the satellite infrastructure piece probably being the most significant i suspect and again i don't know i suspect that this is likely a combination of multiple factors not the least of which is just as we saw them miscalculate both ukrainian resilience as well as their own capabilities in the ground domain and uh, the air domains I, I would i suspect we're seeing a little bit in the cyber domain as well that you know you got to give ukraine credit i also think just as we saw that Russians miscalculate in terms of it seems their expectation as they started the ground invasion was their ability to seize a significant portion of Ukrainian territory to include the capital would likely only require some level of Russian activity on the ground for some period of days to some small number of weeks. That clearly was a total miscalculation. I wonder if one element of that miscalculation was, hey, why do we need to focus much on cyber if we're going to be able to physically possess it through our ground activity anyway. That combined with the fact, I suspect they were saying to themselves, you know, once we take over, we, the Russians, are going to need access to this infrastructure, so right. let's not really degrade it or, or damage it in any significant way. Led them to believe collectively, we don't have to make cyber a primary tool of our initial invasion effort. Now, that clearly has changed because we're over it. It's hard to believe, it over 105 days now, but um, that clearly has changed. But by the same token, you've seen Ukraine pivot to this very different cybersecurity model that I think is really having a, a measure of effect an impact as well as you're seeing, the, the Ukraine is clearly focused a lot on cyber resilience in the last eight years since the Russians invaded Ukraine the first time in the Crimea portion in February of 2014. I think you're seeing that eight years of hard work is really paying off for them. And perhaps we didn't have a full level of understanding or recognition in the West and in the U.S. as to just how significant that level effort has been for the last eight years for Ukraine.
0: Just uh, because your adversary has not been successful this time, right? The biggest mistake is underestimating, right? I'm Just like the Russians may have overestimated their capabilities, uh, there's equally a danger of sort of looking at this and actually letting your defenses down, going like, wow, these guys aren't really that that good. What is it we have to be doing now to not get complacent, right? What's working? Where do we have right. to build? What does the mindset now have to be? Because there are people who are looking at the Russians and saying, wow, you know, the, it's not like these guys, these guys aren't even 10 feet tall. They're four feet tall. And that's kind of a mistake, uh, I think. Yeah, so I, think you I don't think they're four feet tall.
1: Right. I think you make an important point. Number one, there's still many areas in cyber they excel at. Like I said, the prepared set piece kind of thing has always been a strength for them, and I suspect that is still the case. Number two, don't forget um, the Russians. I, I believe we have to assume are an adaptive learning organization. Nothing teaches like failure, and so I would expect that they were they are going to look to come out of this better from a cyber perspective. And so I would think that they are looking at, hopefully, I would think if I was in their shoes, I would be asking myself, so what has not worked as well as we thought it would? How do we change that? You know, One of my takeaways is I'm watching them with cyber and I'm thinking you seem to be so totally separating cyber from battlefield activities. I look at the way we, for example, we we, the US has publicly acknowledged that we use cyber offensively uh, against ISIS. Every single cyber mission we ever executed, we always worked with and coordinated through the Joint Task Force Commander in Iraq, as well as the theater commander with CENTCOM, SOCOM for Syria. We always coordinated our cyber events, our cyber fire. So they were totally integrated with the ground schema maneuver, the air side, and the broader strategic you know, effort or end state that CENTCOM the JTF commander we're trying to achieve. I look at what's going on in Ukraine and I think to myself, you guys are not integrating cyber into your traditional kinetic operations. It's like you're treating this as something totally separate seemingly to me. Now, part of that is, you know, the Russians opted to focus much of their cyber capacity and capability within their intelligence structures. not necessarily within their traditional warfighting structures. One reason in the U.S. why we felt we needed to create a very traditional warfighting organization with expertise in cyber, hence was born U.S. Cyber Command. I I haven't really seen that same approach on the Russian side. And to me, it is a real shortfall for them. They're just not integrating cyber with great effect into their broader efforts on the ground and in the air. With respect to this conflict,
0: um, I and I should point out, Keith Alexander, your predecessor was the first uh, U.S. Cyber Command uh, commander. Um, hey, you... can I? Before
1: I forget, can I make yeah, another of comment? Yeah,
0: of course. This really was very common
1: at RSA. One of the themes I kept hearing it from RSA, out at RSA, particularly from CISOs, was, you know, we are now several months into Shields Up. I just can't sustain this, and I thought to myself guys, one of the takeaways from all this ought to be, we need to increase our day-to-day baseline of cybersecurity and cyber resilience. That this idea that we're just going to surge for some short period of time and then stand down at some significantly lesser level of preparedness, I thought that is a very flawed strategy. What we have to do is learn how do we sustain over time increased levels of cyber resilience, increased levels of cyber defense, and how do we not only do that, but how do we sustain it? Uh, that is one of the things I thought was a really interesting port, part of the discussion out at RSA.
0: And well, how how do we do that, Mike? Right. I mean, we don't have the personnel. Uh, CISOs are completely burned out. Right. That's a two-year the, the chief information security officer. For those who are new to the cyber game, they they do two-year stints of two hundred-hour weeks, burnout take vacation, and then start a new CISO job somewhere else, right? So how, how do we do this? Um, and also from an investment level, right? I mean, I've heard from some companies, right? I mean, this is a burden. We're spending a lot of money to be shields up, right? So it's not even seen as organic, right? There's an investment component to, to, to that. Um, how do we need to structure ourselves? How do we need to think about it? And then how do we have to think about the manpower challenge? Monty Montgomery, uh, Admiral Mark Montgomery, uh, the uh, senior advisor to the Cyber uh, Space Solarium Commission, joined us with his workforce study. Uh, And we're going to have Philip Niedemeyer on next week to talk about uh, the National Cyber Group and the extraordinary work he's doing in building up uh, cyber education. But how do we have to think about workforce? Because this is grinding people down. And at the end of the day, if you don't have the bodies to throw at it, right, there's a role for automation, there's a role for technology, but there's also a role for people. And we're not generating those people fast enough. So how is it we do this?
1: So my first comment would be, this is not about an industrial age metric about, well, how many hours a week are you working? I'm like, guys, we have got to work smarter, not harder. We are not going to close the manpower gap in a meaningful way in the near term. I could well well be wrong, but everything I've seen would suggest to me, guys, this is at least a condition that's going to be in place for years. We're not going to fix this in the next six to 24 months. So we got to build strategies that are not predicated on, well, I'm just going to work an 80-hour week. That is just not sustainable. So to me, this is a question about prioritization. It's a question about the application of technology. It's a question about So what can we do to potentially grow the workforce? Look, not everybody has to be a cyber engineer. What are the tasks that we can create a pool of manpower that perhaps takes some lesser level of cyber knowledge that we can then free up people with perhaps broader experiences, deeper knowledge, and we can maximize them? I will say one of the things that always frustrated me, I thought we had a poor application plan for human capital at times I would watch this and go, guys, we're using people to do functions that we ought to automate. Pattern recognition, what are we using people for that for? Technology should enable us to address that. Now, not with some level of people, I understand that, but I think part of the problem is we're not quite as effective and as efficient with the use of people as we could. Number two, we've got to prioritize. Look, you can't do everything. So part of this, to me, starts with a focus on prioritization. What element within this structure has the most impact on the ability of the organization to execute its mission? And as such, how is that prioritization reflected in our cybersecurity strategy? And then lastly, resilience is about much more than just a cyber workforce. To me, if we increased our level in resiliency, it would be a good return. It would enable us to overcome some of these personal personnel challenges that we have and it also would address some of the resource challenges that that we're dealing with but there is no doubt what this conflict shows us in part to me is that cybersecurity is a fundamental bedrock of the world that we're living in and if you think you can take the same approach you did five years ago 10 years ago the same level of investment the same number of people i'm going guys i History would suggest that's not going to work well. For
0: you. So, what does resilience look like, and what do people need to be doing in the immediate few months? Right. I mean, these guys are saying, right, the burden is uh, is tough. I just can't take it anymore. Right. They're not going to find more people. It's not purely a money issue. So, what is it? How what's what? What do folks need to be doing, Mike, in this immediate period before we get to a better sort of collaborative, integrated nirvana?
1: So two things, number one, to me, start with the basics of cyber hygiene. It, it amazes me having had to respond to so many incidents over the course of my career. It always amazed me about invariably, we found the fundamentals were, mis- were lacking. You've got connectivity that you don't really know is there. You've given way too much access, you've, you've made access levels way too broad within your organization. So I always tell people, start with the basics. If you get the fundamentals right, you got a higher, much higher probability of success, number one. Number two, prioritize, prioritize, prioritize. The prioritization should be driven by the outcomes for the business or the organization you're trying to drive. I still at times watch too many cybersecurity organizations where I think to myself, are your priorities aligned with the priorities of your CEO and your chief operating officer? If I asked your CEO or your chief operating officer, what are the most important components of this business in terms of our ability to execute its business or mission outcomes? And I asked the CISO that question and I looked at how he or she had built their cybersecurity strategy around that set of prioritizations. Would they be the same? In my experience, they normally are not. And that's not a good thing. I also believe that what resilience involves is so much more than just that CISO or IT or OT Resilience is designed to help bring together the broader set of capabilities and prioritizations within the organization. It helps alleviate some of the pressure that exists on those IT and those CISO teams. That is one of the ways to me how you help address this. Man, I am just burning out. I'm burning out my people. You can't expect some small subset of an organization to be the only ones accountable or focused or, or even dealing with cybersecurity, that's not going to work.
0: Indeed. Right. I mean, and at some point, you know, just putting your nose to the grindstone is not an option. All you get is a shorter yeah. nose as, as the, uh, old, uh, ad, uh, used to say. And the um, stone
1: doesn't seem to move very far when you
0: do that. The stone, no, no, it's, it's not quite as resilient as we would like it to be. Uh, let me ask you, uh, you, you spent, uh, obviously you started your career as an illustrious surface warrior, but you went into the crypto community and then to the intelligence community. Uh, and then like every good crypto guy got assigned cyber duties. Uh, and, and there you ended up, uh, with uh, what was a, a terrific career. Um, what's the line, Mike, about what we share and what we do not share? The, the Biden administration has been very open about sharing intelligence, shape, uh, deter, um, You know, make sure you're on the right side of the information uh, challenge. Our Ukrainian allies were not uh, taking the threat perhaps as seriously as they should have. Our European allies dismissed it. It all t- turned out to be uh, actually true. Uh, and there's a concern about burning bridges in the course of doing that. Um, and And then I have a follow-up question about how much we should be communicating and how much we sh- and, and what we should be saying and what we shouldn't be saying. Is there a danger here from your standpoint? Have we shared too much? Um, what's that line? Um, and 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 how do you determine it? Because, you know, you were in the chair, uh, at a very very difficult time with a lot of the Snowden disclosures, we weren't didn't fully know what he had fully what he fully had, uh, and that limited the ability to respond uh, clearly. Anyway, talk to us a little bit about the the challenge of of communicating classified information and yeah. what those lines should be.
1: So, as you're trying to figure out, well, I was part of these discussions in the White House many many times. As you're trying to figure out what type, what um, how much. What restrictions, if any, do you put on who has access to the intelligence you shared, how it is used? One of the things I always try to remind people is, remember, not all intelligence is the same here from a risk perspective. As I used to tell my SIGINT or signals intelligence counterparts, guys, our ability to gain access to intelligence is largely technical in nature. There is not as strong a human component. So I always felt comfortable, look. We all, in the SIGINT world, we lose and regain access all the time for a variety of reasons. On the other hand, I used to remind my SIGINT teammates, look, for our humans, human intelligence teammates, it is a very different paradigm. Guys, there's a man or a woman that is the ultimate source of that knowledge and insight. And if that knowledge or insight manages to become available and allow an adversary to track the source, we are potentially putting at risk human individuals, sources who could be imprisoned, beaten, tortured, jailed, executed, extradited. I said, it's a very different calculation. So one of my first points was always, not all intelligence is the same from a risk perspective in terms of what you're going to share with others. I think this administration has done a very good job of asking itself, what is a reasonable level of risk And I think, importantly, they've also spent a lot in terms of sharing intelligence. I think another area they don't get enough credit for is they also set up the mechanisms, if you will, to share that intelligence. They've created some really interesting network structures and mechanisms to actually move information or intelligence from the U.S. to Ukraine, both within Kyiv and uh, more broadly out at an operational level forward in the battle space. I think that's been a real strength. There's some great lessons there for the future. In terms of the, well, you know, are we being too public? Are, Are we saying too much? Look, clearly there was a deterrence value here. We were trying to highlight to the Russians ahead of their invasion, look, we have good insight and knowledge about what you are contemplating. You are not going to surprise us, and we are not going to allow you to gain some sort of informational advantage. Instead, we said, look, this is the kind of activity you're going to see. We're trying to negate that advantage while we're also trying to potentially deter them to make them understand, look, we know what you're going to do. You really don't want to go through with it. The deterrence piece clearly did not work. We, we did not deter the Russians from invading. I think the information component, though, in terms of influence, in terms of the messaging part proved to be very, very effective. Now, clearly, there's an ongoing discussion in the cyber arena about, well, how forthcoming should we be about just what we're doing, the defensive support we are providing, as well as the offensive activities that we are engaged in vis-a-vis cyber with respect to Russia. And, uh, you know, my, my successor has acknowledged publicly, hey, the United States has engaged in the use of cyber offensively with respect to Russia and this conflict. Um, I had a similar—I well, can remember a similar discussion when I was in the chair about we had never previously acknowledged that we were, had used cyber offensively, if you will, in a military context prior to the campaign against ISIS. I, for one, was pushing aggressively with the then Secretary of Defense, was, sir, we need to publicly acknowledge this. I think we want to show ISIS that we're going to contest them in every domain. But quite frankly, I want to signal every other nation in the world, look, the United States has cyber capacity from an offensive perspective. We will use it if we believe it is appropriate. Now, we will also be very measured and very specific and very careful about how we use it. But I thought there was value in, it in acknowledging that.
0: Um, let me ask one uh, follow up. And I know your time is short and you've got to go. So this is the last one. Um, where? where does that last one lie? Right? I mean, I think everybody understands that the United States and, and your former organizations, both, uh, Mike, have been uh, giving extraordinary uh, support along with our allies and partners. It's, it's no surprise that GCHQ is also engaged in this battle as are a number of other uh, important uh, allies uh, and partners that we have uh, in Europe and, and elsewhere. Um, ultimately, the Russians, right? I mean, we have been telegraphing that we are not at war with the Russians. I can completely understand what General Nakasoni said and, uh, and you know, uh, and also this disclosure, for example, that the FBI made, right? That we have rounded up Russian malware worldwide. That was an extraordinary operation and it was an important reassurance for people that, hey, there's a lot of malware out there and we've gone out there and we've collected Uh, all of that from servers around the world. You and I discussed that many times about Mm -hmm. the the potential uh, landmine danger that existed there. Uh, And so it was a global service that the United States um, performed. Where is that line? Because the Russians have been in active offensive operations against the United States for a long time, which you could have argued were causes belli. Uh, And now the Russians were able to turn what General Nakosoni said around and say, aha, see, uh, they are conducting offensive operations. What what's the line? What's the way to characterize it? And what are the benefits uh, of 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 that disclosure? I guess I'm picking a little bit further on on, on what okay. you just said because there is this sense of on stuff like that you might be best just not discussing it. But also he's right. you know a very seasoned professional and knows what he's doing.
1: So I think an acknowledgement of the activity was reasonable. I would not go in a much detail. You saw the same issue play out, for example, remember about six weeks ago now we had this issue come up with, hey, the Americans are are sharing operational intelligence that the Ukrainians are using to direct kinetic fires on the battlefield. Then the story became, hey, look, is the United States helping Ukraine to target and kill Russian general officers? You know, again, part of my comment is guys, we do not want to get any specifics here. What we ought to acknowledge is that what we are doing broadly, the specific tenets of it, the, the specific applications, that to me starts to get in the classified arena where I personally am just not comfortable with going into details. I think that the, the negatives with that far outweigh the positives. I think a simple acknowledgement is prudent or reasonable And I wouldn't go into any of the details about, okay, so how are you applying cyber offensively? What targets are you going after? How effective has it been? What is your battle damage assessment methodology? Have you changed the targets you're going after? I mean, those are the kinds of questions you go, guys, we're just not going down this road.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it was, it was interesting, because uh, there was an acknowledgement, we were giving them intelligence, and then it was okay, well, they use that intelligence to sink the mosque and to kill the and kill uh, general officers. But I mean, that's what happens when you share intelligence with an ally and partner, they're going to use that intelligence in any way they deem fit. Uh, and that's the reason why intelligence is considered a strategic weapon in many respects, right? I mean, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, so, uh, you know, if you're if you're sharing it for them, I mean, my 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 attitude a little bit to this, Mike, is don't don't attack your peaceful neighbor and we we won't really have a problem and the rest (laughs) of the world won't won't target you. Right.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. I was like, look, remember when precipitated such activity and were you not engaged in this activity, we would not be engaged in this activity ourselves.
0: Exactly. Uh, Mike, thanks very much. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program uh, and uh, certainly already look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so very much and bon voyage.
1: No, thanks. Have a great day, Vago. Thank you very much.